Welcome to Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I'm in studio here with our senior pastor, Scott Richards. That's me. And Pastor Sean Richards. That's him. <laughs> that is. If you're watching, if you're listening to this on the radio, that's nearly incomprehensible. Yeah, but, nearly. Yeah, yeah. But we hope you're watching because uh, that's what we want you to do. We, we want you to engage with us. If you're watching, this is a reason for hope. This is a live streamed Bible Answer Program where our live stream audience can, on the air, uh, right in real time, ask questions. And we take these questions, uh, questions about the Bible, the historic Christian faith. Uh, does God exist? Uh, can we know truth? Uh, all kinds of questions pertaining to worldviews, world religions, but really specifically how to know what God has communicated through his word, the Holy Scriptures. So if you have a question pertaining to a specific passage or how to apply a biblical principle to your life or any really any question relating to the Christian faith, um, please let us know. And there's multiple ways you can do that. <clears throat> you can chime in by simply uh, going to our Facebook page and you can um, <clears throat> use the chat box during the live stream and just ask a question. We monitor all our live stream platforms all at the same time. So as I look for questions, if you ask one, I will uh, get it into the into the feed and we'll address it. So go to facebook.com forward slash CCF Tucson or just go to Facebook and search for our page, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, where we are currently live streaming from and you can uh, engage that way. You can also go to our YouTube channel. We are simultaneously live streaming there as well. And if you have any issues, uh, you can always pop over to another platform and check us out. If sometimes, for whatever reason, one of them fails, and uh, that's why we live stream multiple, to multiple platforms at a time. Uh, but you can find us on YouTube.com. Just search for A Reason for Hope, and you'll find our channel. Or you can go directly to the URL, which is Facebook.com, I'm sorry, YouTube.com forward slash at A Reason for Hope 546. Now, if you want to avoid social media platforms altogether, just go to our website. <clears throat> That's CalvaryChristianFellowship.com and click the Watch Live tab. And uh, you can uh, not only engage with all of our content uh, that we post all our services, uh, but you can also make a prayer request during the live stream. You can There's a chat box as there as well, so you can ask questions. In fact, uh, now, other than YouTube, um, most of our questions are not coming in from our website, so that's really great. So thank you for visiting us. Also, if you want to do it the old-fashioned way and just email us, you can just email us directly at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope at gmail.com. And if you are a part of our community, I'd encourage you to check out our app. You can go to the Apple or Google Play Store and download it. You just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you see that little red icon with the white dove, then you have found us. This app is uh, pretty cool. <clears throat> you can keep up with all our calendar of events. You can join or create chat groups, messaging groups. Uh, there's a, di a nifty digital Bible on there with multiple translations. You can leave notes. It'll save those notes. You can highlight texts. Very easy to create a profile. And, of course, it links us uh, together as a part of our community. So I'd encourage you to download that app <clears throat> if you have not yet. Also, if you want to add our services, this program, all the live stream content we uh, produce to any smart device that you have, such as an Amazon Fire or a Roku device, uh, you can add us there, just searching for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and of course, looking for that red icon with the white dove, and then you can add us. I also encourage you to follow our senior pastor, this guy. This guy. Right over here. This guy here. <laughs> on the 
X platform, formerly Twitter, and that handle is at ScottR4H, at ScottR4H. And you can ask questions on this program there as well, so if you want to just tweet a question, I think they still call it tweet. The website's still Twitter. I don't think they call it Xing a question. I don't think so. That'd be <laughs> so. weird to cross out that question right before I ask it. Yeah. But yeah, you can tweet out a question, comments. We get a lot of uh, really interesting engagement there. So I'd encourage you to take advantage of that. Um, it's very informative and um, very entertaining too. Uh, some comedic posts I follow. Uh, I don't comment as much, but then again, I don't comment on anybody. <laughs> Well, you don't you recommend keep your thoughts my to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I keep my thoughts to myself. I, I, I've learned. That's, that's practically un-American. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Well, before we take your questions, we uh, typically do a short um, sort of summary of current events and how it relates to the nation of Israel and biblical prophecy and uh, what we call the last days or the study of, uh, of the last days called eschatology. So we would do that, but we also like to have a word of prayer. So we're going to do that first, and then we'll get started. Okay, let's do it. Father, I thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to gather together in your presence. We pray that your spirit would guide our conversation and whatever subjects in your word you want explored. We want you to be the one that determines that. Uh, Lord, we do pray again for uh, Israel. We do pray that you would protect them. And uh, as you promised in Psalm 121, uh, the one who watches over Israel, Lord, you never slumber or sleep. So uh, continue to do a, a mighty work and awaken the hearts, uh, especially of the Jewish people as well mm. as the Palestinians, uh, to their need for a relationship with you. We pray that uh, you would win that spiritual battle. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's been a very interesting uh, several months and... I'm always uh, just stunned, literally stunned, as to how people have sort of flipped the narrative on the Jewish people and the conflicts going on there. So what do you have uh, to share with us today, Scott? Well, interesting. You'd bring up uh, narrative flipping. Uh, we talked yesterday about a, a horrific terrorist attack uh, that took place at the uh, tomb of Qasim Soleimani, the uh, former head of the Iranian Republican Guard Corps. Uh, he died approximately four years ago, uh, taken out by a U.S. drone attack uh, while he was heading to the airport in Baghdad, Iraq. Uh, this was a very uh, important uh, turning point in terms of Iran's influence and impact uh, as a uh, state sponsor of terrorism in the region in that uh, uh, Soleimani was absolutely a brilliant strategist, very, very gifted individual mm -hmm. as far as uh, being able to use his uh, tactics and strategies uh, for nefarious means, obviously, but uh, really uh, an irreplaceable <coughs> individual. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so uh, because it was the fourth anniversary of uh, his death, uh, there was a uh, gathering at his memorial at a place called uh, the Kerman Cemetery outside of Tehran. It's a place where, uh, I guess, kind of like Arlington National Cemetery, uh, heroes from Iran, their martyrs, are buried there. Well, uh, there was a terrorist attack that started with a suitcase bomb exploding not far from the tomb, uh, which did some damage <clears throat> and obviously took some lives. But uh, as is the want of terrorists, the flood of people exiting 
the cemetery were greeted by another suitcase bomb, which was awaiting them outside, which ended up taking out much, many more people, much more uh, brutal loss of life that happened there. Last estimates that uh, were seen online, well over 100 uh, died in that terrorist attack. But uh, as is the case with a terrorist attack, the big question is, who were the terrorists? Well, almost immediately after the attack, ISIS, uh, you remember uh, ISIS from uh, a few years ago. They were uh, led by uh, an individual uh, that uh, was a uh, strong devotee of uh, their own brand of uh, last day's teaching uh, regarding uh, a Muslim point of view and all that, at least a Sunni Muslim point of view on all of that. They believed that uh, the Messiah would come back, the Muslim Messiah, their 12th Imam, and lead the forces of Islam to victory uh, when a uh, particular city uh, that is located in Syria uh, was uh, attacked by the forces of the West. Well, again, uh, because ISIS had uh, done so much damage, uh, they uh, were considered uh, a main terror target and were pretty much wiped out as far as their influence there in Syria. I don't know how you regroup from telling people that uh, this is the linchpin of your uh, view of biblical prophecy uh, when uh, this uh, town called Dabiq uh, was uh, basically destroyed and uh, no Muslim messiah ended up coming on the scene. But uh, be that as it may, uh, ISIS uh, definitely uh, took a blow but has reconstituted itself and is no longer operating in the area of Syria where they were before. Uh, it now uh, does most of its dirty work in Africa. When you hear about uh, the, uh, and you, you don't really hear about it, but uh, the hundreds of uh, Christians that have lost their lives in terrorist attacks over the last two weeks in Nigeria, uh, just uh, overwhelmingly hmm. uh, uh, tragic sets of circumstances. Uh, we are definitely praying for uh, our uh, believing brothers there, including a, a regular participant on the program by the name of Adni. Uh, he uh, teaches a Calvary Chapel uh, seminary, believe it or not, uh, for young men who have given their lives to the Lord from a Muslim background. He also coming to the Lord from a uh, Muslim background. Uh, but we don't really hear anything about that. Uh, is, uh, ISIS apparently is involved uh, with this, along with Boko Haram, which is another terrorist group that operates uh, in Nigeria. And one of the reasons they're so active down there is because so many people in sub-Saharan Africa are leaving Islam for Christianity. It freaks them out, and their only response is violence. So that's mm -hmm. really kind of what uh, ISIS has been up to. However, ISIS has also been active in other areas like Iran. I ISIS took uh, credit uh, for the bombing of a, a Shiite mosque inside Iran back in 2017. So uh, again, ISIS takes credit for all of this, and we would think that would wow. be a fairly open and shut case, but you would be wrong because uh, according to Iranian media, Israeli intelligence was responsible for this particular bombing. Uh, and uh, they are running an article uh, in uh, the Tasnim news agency uh, these days, along with other Iranian uh, media outlets that promotes the narrative that ISIS is covering up for Israel. Now, <laughs> that's, uh, 
uh, a significant uh, case of uh, strange bedfellows, if you ask me, because uh, the one thing that ISIS agrees on is that uh, every Jew uh, all across the world is a legitimate terror target. So uh, working with the Mossad, I guess that's what makes them so brilliant. Uh, they're always scheming and putting together these uh, odd alliances to uh, persecute uh, the, the poor Muslims there. Uh, they say that ISIS is covering up for Israel and the United States who are behind the attack in Kerman. Well, okay, interesting theory, but then we've got to ask ourselves the question, what possible advantage, what possible benefit could this terrorist attack accrue to the interest of the United States or Israel under this set of circumstances? Uh, virtually none. Uh, Israel certainly isn't interested in an even wider war, which would uh, involve Iran becoming directly involved. They tend to use their terror proxies, obviously, like Hezbollah, and they are also supportive of Hamas uh, in, uh, in Gaza. Uh, it just uh, doesn't make uh, the slightest bit of sense. Uh, the United States, obviously, is in the midst of battling the Houthi rebels and uh, their uh, closing down of uh, the uh, gulf between the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and the Horn of Africa down there. Uh, this stirring things up and uh, making your uh, sponsor of terrorism just that much more angry in a symbolic kind of a way. Now, I could see taking out some kind of uh, military infrastructure in Iran as a way of saying you need to back off. But this uh, is only going to galvanize Iranian uh, resolve to uh, continue the battle. So uh, the, the strategy simply doesn't make sense unless, of course, you are looking for an excuse to get more deeply involved in the battle, uh, to uh, galvanize world opinion against uh, Israel. But then again, why would you want to alienate the United States, seen as though the last uh, UN Security Council resolution uh, that was passed against uh, Israel and uh, their dealings with things in Gaza uh, passed with the United States abstaining uh, from a veto on that bill. Why would you want to uh, irritate the United States? I guess uh, when the, uh, the uh, plain sense of what's going on uh, makes sense, I don't think we need to seek any other sense. ISIS is no ally of Iran. Uh, as we mentioned in the program yesterday, they are Shiites, or they are Sunnis, and they absolutely despise the Shiites, as uh, I think, uh, Sean, you mentioned, as <coughs> apostates and uh, hypocrites. That's the general uh, tag they put on them, correct? Yeah, and it's an important side detail to be aware of because when people say, oh, ISIS, this has been said, can't be Muslim because they're attacking other Muslims. The question, of course, is are they targeting Muslims they deem as faithful and just hadn't shed blood that day? Or do they deem them as Muslims who aren't adhering to all of what Muhammad and his messenger, or excuse me, Allah and his messenger, and that was intentional, by the way, uh, have commanded? That's a death penalty in Islam, not to submit. That's what being a Muslim means, one who submits. And if you don't submit in all things that Muhammad has revealed, then that puts you at the whims of the jihadis at the same degree and for the same penalty that a non-believer, that a Jew, that a Christian, that the people of the book are under. So 
understand. ISIS is attacking Shias because they reject the quote-unquote proper descendants of Muhammad's succession. And of course, the Sunnis throw that, or the Shias throw that back at them and say, well, you reject the original rightly guided Caliph Ali, and on it goes. And this is another important thing for us to remember. Islam is essentially a political system that uses religion as a shield. When we're talking about the system of ethics and just how you go about your life, your view of the supernatural, we here in the West try to water that down in so far as it only affects the most superficial aspects of your personality and it doesn't make any tangible impact on your life, unlike those bigoted fundamentalists over there that want to throw us all in a handmaid's tale. Well, when it comes to the quote-unquote separation of church and state, understand that Islam does not play by that misrepresentation of American history. We're talking about a group that sees the state and sees religion as one and the same. So if you're talking to someone who doesn't take their Quran seriously and sees absolutely plenty of room between the edicts of Muhammad is just, oh, that was for that time and that place. I'll let my imam or sheikh sort out those details for me. And the Christian who goes, you know, I go to church on Christmas and Easter, but I don't know about all that Jesus stuff. I'm not a born again and all that stuff. We're looking at the same type of personality. Meanwhile, those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus want to know whether there is a God, want to understand whether Christianity is true or not, and the terrorist are also on the same level of taking their religion seriously. So understand, when ISIS is targeting fellow Muslims, it's because they don't see them as fellow Muslims. They're rejecting the core claims of the Quran, Hadith, and Sunnah, and because of these main political divides, of which there is more than just Shia and Sunni, it ultimately ends up being a perpetual bloodbath because you're in one of two camps. You're of our school, in which case you better be toting our party line, or you're not Muslim enough and are under the same death penalty as those who reject Islam. And this is why it needs to be combated as an ideology, not as necessarily a political entity. Because you, say for example, bomb the uh, living tar out of ISIS, another group's just going to come up because they're all reading the same book. And you're eventually going to come across someone like Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who will also take his religion seriously. And by the way, the founder of ISIS that's being referenced, uh, may he continue to burn at the feet of our Lord, will, of course, uh, have the credentials put forward as a PhD in Quran studies. He wasn't ignorant. He wasn't brainwashed by Islamophobes. This is the ongoing reality. This is why we need to be informed about these things, because it's a, it's a war that's on our doorstep, and it's one that needs to be fought the biblical way. That, of course, being tearing down arguments and everything that exalts itself against Christ, mainly Surah 4157, denying that he was ever crucified, let alone that he was God. So there you go. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, I, uh, I've been pretty in awe of the latest data that I've been seeing by Jay Smith and the scholarship that he's referencing in terms of the historicity of the, the Quran itself and basically the way he puts it, the man, the place, and the book. <laughs> just the book and the man, the book and the man, yeah. yeah. Well, and it, um, for those who are wondering, P-F-A-N-D-E-R is his organization named after a prominent evangelist. But the idea behind this is, of course, like ministries to Mormons, <clears throat> ministries to Jehovah's Witnesses, these are people who don't know Christ but claim his name every other breath. So if they need to know 
the true Jesus that loved them, that died for them, that wants a relationship with them. It's not going to come by making sure they're comfortable and unoffended. But another interesting thing about this is, and what you're referencing, the research that's being done is essentially what Christianity endured. And I say that with emphasis. In the 18th century, in the German schools of Tübingen and Wellhausen, the rise of secularism and so forth, gutted the Christian influence in Europe because people just weren't doing their homework as far as the history of Christianity. Then we started to dig, we started to actually get citation for where and when and how and why our book and our man line up with reality. Islam doesn't have as much going for it. Uh, just two, maybe three things before we get into our questions and any other prophecy updates. The most fun I think, is not only do the Islamic sources themselves contradict pretty much every arguing point that Muslim dawagandists will put forward today, the Quran's been perfectly preserved, despite the fact that Islamic sources say that entire passages have gone up missing because of the Battle of Yamama. I'm not joking, that's the name of it. We can go on and on about that, but the discoveries that are being made is essentially that we know nothing. I mean, complete Sergeant Schultz style about the Quran <clears throat> until maybe 300 years after the death of Muhammad, that this man who supposedly, you know, united all of Arabia under this banner and no one's even heard of him, no one mentions his name, and by the way, his name isn't mentioned in the Quran. Three times it's assumed parenthetically, but it's more of a title the praised one, mm -hmm. and it's uh, starting to look like those are more references to Jesus than yeah. him, but that's another issue. <clears throat> the second amusing thing is that the earliest biographical source, taking notes of comparisons, wins our earliest gospel account according to Christian, not just tradition, but even secular history. Yeah, New Testament scholarship. Yeah, um, well, we're talking about the, uh, the, I guess it would depend on your point of view, Let, let's go Mark with Mark and Matthew goes. But the earliest manuscript evidence that we have is the Rylands Fragment of John, which dates to no later than 120 AD. Which would be about 30 years yeah. after it was written. Yeah, and if we're going to go off of the atheist points of view as far as when those things were written, John, if you have a piece of something that was a copy of a copy, that's not the original, put about... Uh, five libraries worth of books to the flames. But that being said, the Gospel of Mark, atheist dates, not ours. They would say around the 60s, right? right. Yeah. In terms well, of authorship, yeah. Uh, yeah. The Gospel of Mark, they claimed the first, despite the people who were actually there saying it was Matthew, be that as it may. 30 years mm -hmm. from the events that it claims to report. Now, if we take a look at that and compare it to Islam's earliest records. You know, in the earliest biographical source, the Sunnah of Ibn Isham, which was a censored, watered-down version of his teacher, Ibn Ishaq, who preceded him, which we have no evidence for. You know how long after Muhammad's life that was? 300 years? Ten times the oh. earliest date of our gospel. Isn't that fun? Now, we can go on with that, but it's important to be able to call these things out because Christians had to deal with it, and once again, we survived. If Islam can't survive these things, then it's going to accomplish one of two things. <clears throat> First, it's going to be a gut punch towards the people who are so 
passionately and invigorously invested in this religion as a social movement, that they're not going to be potential fodder for terrorist recruitment. And secondly, the people who are willing to lay down their lives for this cause are going to have those questions itching at the back of their mind before they pull the trigger. Either way, we're saving lives. So understand that these are things we need to be prepared to share with those who will give us a hearing ear. If you get uh, censored for hate speech, like in areas that are dominated by Muslims like Great Britain and Northern Africa, you can leave it to us to uh, spam the Internet incessantly. But the point being made is just that. This is something that is not only important for people to know for the sake of the Muslims and not following this death cult, but not for the sake of making them leave Islam in of themselves. They need to know the true Jesus, not Isa bin Miriam, who is a, again, gutted version of Jesus of Nazareth that was, first of all, renamed Esau as an insult from the Hebrews, but Muhammad didn't know any better, and of course is just a walking, talking argument against everything that he claimed, despite the Quran saying the Quran and Injil are the words of Allah. Hmm. So live with that but that's the point yeah and feel free to chime in uh, yep. sean stays very very well up to date on current discoveries on what we would call new testament textual criticism but now being focused in on the quran it's very very fascinating i've been staying on top of it as well and so please feel free to ask especially if you come from a muslim background uh we're not here to bash islam we're here just to seek truth yeah and just to sum up the uh, the whole deal with the um terrorist attack in Iran. People ask, okay, um, Iran's claiming the United States and Israel did it. Uh, doesn't really hold a whole lot of water. Uh, then who did? Well, uh, some will say, well, if ISIS claimed to do it, it's probably ISIS. That seems to be the old Occam's razor. Uh, all things <laughs> being equal, the simplest explanation is the best. Uh, it could also be uh, a number of different uh, internal groups in Iran that have a huge bone to pick with the government of Iran as mm. it's currently constituted. I mean, you could say the, the Kurds, they hate the government there. Uh, there are uh, secularist Marxist groups that hate the theocracy there. Uh, there are loyalists to the previous Shah of, of Iran that hate the government there. And uh, you know, the other possibility is that it is a false flag uh, that Iran, whose government, quite frankly, hasn't shown a whole lot of uh, tender, loving mm -hmm. kindness and mercies toward its own citizens, uh, probably wouldn't even mind staging such a thing mm -hmm. if it can galvanize attention of uh, its own citizens away from the problems it's having governing and saying, oh, we've really got to focus in on what those Zionists are doing down there. Uh, in in Israel, so um, well, that's well, a lot more believable than supposed claims that the U.S. government staged the 9/11 attacks. <laughs> yeah, well, and remember, yeah. Muhammad said, "War is deceit." Yeah, mm, right. Yeah. So uh, you know, it's it's going to. I would say, ninety percent sure it's ISIS because ISIS said it. ISIS has done it in the past. Uh, ISIS would have the the opportunity, motive, and. Uh, you know, again, the, the wherewithal to be able to pull off an attack uh, like that. Uh, beyond that, I, I just think it's more stirring the pot and another reason for us to uh, remember uh, to be praying for mm -hmm. the uh, peace of Israel in the midst of this circumstance. Amen. Well, we uh, got a question on our web, so we got a lot of questions today, so we'll try to get through them uh, uh, post-haste. Uh, but 
thoroughly. Uh, Tucson Native on our website wants to know, is it good for churches to fast corporately? I know a few Pentecostal churches that participate in 21 days of prayer and fasting. Uh, names a few names uh, and a few here in Tucson. Is this biblical? Yeah, I think there's a biblical basis uh, for it. In the book of Acts, chapter 13, uh, we are told that a, a huge uh, part of bringing the gospel to the world began with just such a seeking of God. Acts 13, verse 1 says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they uh, sent them away. So notice fasting just seems to be assumed at this point. Now Jesus in his earthly ministry was asked, uh, why is it that the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? Uh, Jesus said, well, can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Uh, but there will come a time when the bridegroom's taken away, and at that time they will fast. Uh, now, just a word uh, about fasting. Fasting, we usually understand as passing on a meal or, or, again, just going on a liquid diet, not having any kind of solid foods and so on, for a spiritual purpose. Now, that, I think, is the key thing that we have to focus in on, uh, is, you know, what's the motivation behind it all. Uh, boy, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, uh, we are told that uh, the people of Israel uh, were fasting, and God was basically saying to them, hey, you know, uh, I'm not really interested in you fasting and, you know, you bowing your head, uh, you know, and uh, making a big uh, show of, of your piety. Uh, why? Uh, well, in verse 5 of Isaiah 58, we're told, is it a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out its sackcloth and ashes. Would you call this a fast an acceptable day to the Lord? Is it this not the fast that I've chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor or cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him and, and hide, uh, not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dine in the darkness and your darkness shall be as noonday. And, and it goes on, from there. But uh, the important thing to understand is this. Fasting, you know, as far as a spiritual discipline is concerned, is not something that we do uh, in lieu of these things that God desired, showing compassion, walking in love with for one another. Uh, those are the things that the Lord really honors. And if you want something that is going to pump up your prayer life, make your prayer life more effective, well, then start sharing your heart in really tangible and practical ways. That kind of fast, if you will, if you want to uh, you know, frame it in terms of giving up something for a spiritual purpose, 
well, maybe take some of the money that you would use for some form of entertainment or something along that line, something that you would enjoy going out to dinner, what have you, and contribute it uh, to a, a group that is making uh, a real difference. Uh, you know, again, there's uh, great opportunities through Joel Rosenberg's Joshua Fund uh, to support Israel uh, and the people in Israel who are in tremendous hardship as a result of the conflict that's going on uh, in Gaza right now. These, this would be, yeah, I think, equally valid uh, in terms of seeing it as a fast. The one thing you got to watch out for, and this is uh, a real occupational hazard, when you say churches are getting together, we're going to have this big fast together, we're all going to uh, give up food together, and so on. Yeah, if your heart's in the right place, if you're seeking the Lord on this, if every time you get hungry, it reminds you to pray, right? Good on you. Knock yourself out. But Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, warned in no uncertain terms of not fasting like hypocrites do. In other words, you can fast, you can pass up a meal and still be walking in hypocrisy. How? Well, the Pharisees of that day would dishevel their clothing and uh, have these sad looks on their faces to be seen by men as fasting. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, they have their reward. People have seen them. They have no reward. He goes, but when you fast, uh, don't let anybody else know that you're fasting. Just make it something between you and the Father, and the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So that should be our priority. Can we as a church decide, boy, you know, we really need to fast for the spiritual condition of our nation. Sure, we can do that. Uh, we really need to fast and pray for Israel during this time. Absolutely. Uh, you can certainly do that. If, say, the church is going through, you know, some major decision-making about its future, fasting and seeking the Lord, great, great thing, I think, to do. But make sure your fasting is unto the Lord. You're not fasting for each other. Uh, you know, I remember uh, a few years ago, it kind of got to be in vogue uh, to uh, do a 40-day fast because Jesus fasted for 40 days. And I remember going to this Bible study and uh, this guy there, uh, in fact, he was kind of a, a guest speaker who was there, uh, you know, was kind of looking a little downcast. And he, he said, oh, you know, I started this 40-day fast and I, I didn't figure out that uh, my 40-day fast was going to go over Thanksgiving. And there I was at Thanksgiving, you know, and everybody's eating turkey and mashed potatoes and all this wonderful stuff. And here I am with my little juice cup. And it was really, really hard. And I couldn't help but think, oh, man, why did you tell me that? You know, you went through all that suffering, and I'm impressed. But is God impressed? <laughs> you know, is it just like, oh, I've gone through all this suffering and this piety, uh, you know, and look what a godly person I am. Be very, 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 very careful of that. Because the one thing that Jesus called out, I think, uh, as much or more, than anything else is hypocrisy and playing to the crowds and putting on a nice spiritual face without having a heart behind it. So search your heart, make sure you're focused in on the Lord. Uh, if you're doing it as unto him, we saw in Acts 13, you can do that corporately uh, because they were fasting as unto, they were ministering to the Lord when they did it. But uh, if it's just, ooh, everybody's kind of doing it, sort of a new spiritual fad, or we think that somehow by doing this, like we say it's going <clears> to <throat> pump up our prayers or make God do something he wouldn't normally do <laughs> for fasting. I, I'm not sure that's a real accurate view of what prayer is all about.
Yeah. Thank you, Pastor yeah. Scott, and thanks for the question. Uh, love your name. Tucson native, like that. Yari wants to know, is the Sabbath for Jews only? So in other words, uh, are Gentiles supposed to observe the Sabbath, or is that something that was just created for Jews? Or how do we explain that in the context of a new covenant? Well, Colossians, I think, is fairly straightforward and not priding yourself on observing new moons or festivals or Sabbaths, because the substance of all these things is of Christ. So when we're talking about the Hebrew people, obviously they're just as much under the same covenant as we are right now. Their Messiah has fulfilled their Sabbath. However, when it comes to anything that we do, be it fasting, praying, like we talked about before, we have the opportunity to do these things with an Old Testament model in mind, but we need to see them in light of the whole picture. If you want to take a day to rest, to kind of set aside all the technology and just spend time with the Lord and your family, I think there's a lot of profit in that. But if you don't, it no more makes you spiritual than the person who treats every day as unto the Lord. See Romans 14. So just keep that in mind to understand that the Sabbath's purpose was to give us an opportunity not only to kind of set the foundations for the concept of a weekend. We take that for granted in our culture, but also to reinforce the fact that the rest that we have for a good works relationship with Christ or with God has been settled and done away with in Christ. We have a daily rest from that kind of pursuit because of him. If we understand that, then how we schedule things, I think it's wise to take a break every now and then, say, you know, I'm not going to travel, I'm not going to drive, I'm not going to touch my phone on this day of the week. Do as each purpose is in his own heart. But if you use it as a stick to beat over other people and say, like certain cult groups have tried, uh, you don't observe the true Sabbath, or you guys are worshiping on the wrong day, or such and such and this. This is the whole point of not only the original Sabbath, but our current Sabbath, that is, our rest in Christ. So just keep those things in mind, you'll be okay. Yeah, uh, Romans 14, one man regards every day alike, uh, one man regards one day above another, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. I, man, if you want to set aside one day out of the week to especially focus in on your relationship with God, Knock yourself out. That's great. Me, this is the day which the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. Every day is a day where I can enter into that rest uh, from a works-based righteousness that Jesus provides. So um, you want to do a day like that? Do it, but the caveat, and read through Romans 14 because it deals with the whole idea of eating foods and observing days and how you handle that. The most important thing is this. Have your conviction before God. Have it be well thought through biblically so that you have peace in your own heart about it but never ever ever look down your nose at somebody that doesn't share your particular take on a negotiable issue you know a great illustration of this is i remember early on in my walk with god someone explained to me about having a quiet time you know a time in the morning where you spent Lord, the habit before you know your your day gets going and they gave me this pamphlet called seven minutes with god and it taught you to pray through this acrostic ACTS. Uh, you do two minutes of adoring God and, and two minutes of confessing your sins and, and one minute of uh, thanking God for the good things in your life. And then the other two minutes you could spend on requests. Well, I never heard of such a thing. So I started doing it. I thought it was great. And, uh, you know, then I, I, I just found that seven minutes with God wasn't, wasn't enough. I wanted to have more of that. But then my flesh started getting a hold of it. Uh, in two ways. First of all, 
Uh, my brother who became a believer not long after I did, I told him about that. I said, hey, you want to read that? This seven minutes with God change your life. You know, and I came back a couple of days later and I, I said, well, you doing that seven uh, minutes with God deal? He says, no, I just kind of talk to God throughout my day. And I just thought to myself, what? You don't want to spend seven minutes with God in the morning? You know, what kind of walk with God do you? And, and suddenly <laughs> I'm judging my brother over this thing. Then I remember, oh, you know, like I said, seven minutes is not enough. And then this horrible thing happened. I remember getting done with my prayer time in the morning. I looked up and I prayed for 30 minutes, almost on the nose. I thought, wow, 30 minutes with the Lord. That's really awesome. Man, just time really flew. And then the next day I was praying and I got done praying and I looked up and it had been like 22 minutes. And I was like, oh no, I only prayed 22 minutes. I better fill in another eight minutes here to, to bring. Mm. And pretty soon, if I didn't pray my 30 minutes instead of seven minutes with God, somehow my quiet time was defective. And finally, in the midst of all of that, I think the Lord tapped me on the shoulder and said, are you done yet? You know, could you imagine having a relationship with anybody else uh, based on those kind of rules? Mm. So you have to be really careful. Good things. Is there anything wrong with having a quiet time with the Lord in the morning? I highly recommend right. it. Yeah. You know, in the, oh Lord, in the morning, uh, will I direct my prayer unto you? And we'll look up, Psalm 5 says. Uh, but if it becomes this deal where it's a got to instead of a get to, be very, very careful. Mm -hmm. And if it causes me to look down my nose at other people that don't share my particular spiritual discipline about mm -hmm. this, uh, then uh, I'm really off base. Mm -hmm. So that's very wise. Thank yeah. you. And thanks for the question. <clears throat> Mac wants to know, uh, we have time. Yeah. Uh, I have a stepdaughter that is 18 and got a tattoo and has a boyfriend and I don't like her behavior. I don't know how to deal with it biblically so stepdaughter adult age tattoo boyfriend not a fan of the behavior how to approach this type of situation biblically yeah it's never easy when you're the step parent and obviously those boundaries are things that can be used to complicate what would normally be already difficult enough conversations uh, first of all let's just understand where the sin lies uh People in prohibitions of tattoos in general usually go to Leviticus 19 and verse 28. Uh, I'll start in verse 26 so that you note a trend going on here. You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. Ask Adrian the significance of that. You shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord." Do not prostitute your daughter to cause her to be a harlot, lest the land fall into harlotry and land become full of wickedness, and on it goes. So this description of pagan customs that were just taken for granted among a particular group of people that would be helpful to know is the title of the book, Leviticus. Now what does that mean? Pertaining to the Levites. So this is addressing <laughs> yeah. the Levites. Now, what does the third-born son of Jacob have to do with these particular instructions? What made them special? Well, uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi. Yes, third yeah. son. Yeah, uh, essentially they were going to be the priests of Israel. Okay, so pertaining to the priests. They were not. They were not the priests. Not to make hookers out of their kids. They were not to shave the edges of their beards. 
not practice divination or soothsaying, not tattoo their flesh or make cuttings in their flesh for the dead. Now, if we're going to take all of that together, these are obviously some pretty interesting customs, but if you look at the ancient world, that's what people expected of priests. And the entire focus of the book, like a beating drum, is you shall not be like the nations around you, you shall be my holy people. So what would be different about these priests? Well, they wouldn't cosmetically follow the customs of the nations. How do you know they're priests? So they got the little master, you know, uh, Shifu mm. thing going on there, right? The long, thin beard. What marked someone as uh, having the office of a priest to it? Well, they'd have all these sacred symbols marked all over their bodies in basically ritualistic grieving practices, including but not limited to self-mutilation. That was how you expressed your grief, and we understand how that reflects in the world today. When they would essentially have the status of a priest, how did they get their children involved in the process? Well, they wouldn't just be married off. They would be, quote-unquote, passed around the community. Child prostitution was a very common practice in the ancient world, and Israel was judged for it when they got involved in the midst. We, again, know a lot about what that's like today. When you went to a priest, what did you expect him to do? Tell you your future. They were going to uh, ooh and wow you with cold or hot readings and so forth, and just tell you the things that you wanted to hear. This section of scripture is speaking to the priest, saying, you're not to be like this. Don't defraud my people. Don't put on a show for my people. Just teach them. Tell them what I taught you. That's why it goes on to note, just observe the Sabbaths, do justly by your neighbor. And by the way, Leviticus 19, that's where the passage is quoted, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Things he thought you wouldn't learn today. Yeah. But that's the point. So when we're asking the question, is it a sin to get tattoos? Well, it can be foolish. And there is at times a difference. Especially Every, if they misspell the tattoo. We're, no regrets. <laughs> no right? regrets. Yeah. yeah. That, that's the point. Yeah, make sure make sure your tattoo artist is uh, literate. Yes. Always uh, start from the bottom. <laughs> yeah. but, but that's the whole point in all of this. When we're talking about foolish decisions, of course, all sin is foolish, but not all foolishness is sin. You could not know the greater details. You could be manipulated by somebody else. So you need to ask the question, if I'm going to do something that's going to have permanent implications, or at least leave scar tissue, if I decide to go back on it, will that be a worthwhile commitment? People, you know, want to get a cross on them or, you know, some other superficial thing in regards to, you know, uh, marriage perhaps or something of the like. First of all, make sure the marriage is a committed issue because see previous point. But the other issue that a lot of people do is like, oh, well, you know, I want to get this tattoo honoring my grandma or honoring my family member. Well, that's where we get into more specifics. That's not a way that we can express our grief. Maybe well-intended, but scripturally, that's what was being addressed. That you can understand that we grieve with hope, First Corinthians or First Thessalonians chapter 4 says, not as the heathen. So when we're put in that situation and people say, oh, you got a tattoo, and you know that that's, that's the devil, that's evil. Look at Leviticus 19.28, little more than just a cursory reading from an internet meme might do you some good. But let's also take another step back and note the real issue here. You don't approve of the behavior of a teenage girl. Of a teenage girl girl. Those last four words oftentimes tell the whole story. Now, again, I'm not a father, nor, but I am the son of a father, and a father who also has a teenage girl was uh, 
my sister, your daughter, always the easiest to manage in every decision she made in life? Yeah, I think any parent of teenage uh, teenagers in general uh, of both genders will tell you this. I discovered this, that there's two kinds of people in this world, people who write books on parenting and people who have kids. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, each, each child is different. Um, you know, I think maybe the most important GPS heading, if you will, uh, that you can have in all of this, and, and especially, you know, not only as uh, a person that worked in youth ministry uh, for a number of years, but also uh, as uh, a parent, uh, boy, this thing is really key. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Uh, how do you provoke uh, a child to wrath? Well, sometimes you can provoke a child to wrath by just simply setting healthy boundaries. Uh, the old, uh, this hurts me more than it hurts you sort of thing. And somebody's got to be the adult and someone's got to draw a line and saying, no, I don't think uh, going uh, bungee jumping uh, with a, uh, a rope that is made out of uh, paper clips is the best thing for you. Uh, just, I, I draw the line there. Uh, somebody's got to draw a line on some of the crazy stuff that kids want to do. And, you know, the, the thing is they might whine and, and complain and things like that. Uh, but I inevitably, uh, kids want to be told what to do. They want to have boundaries within their lives. Uh, when I was a uh, uh, track coach in Southern California while I was going to seminary and everything else, I remember one of the athletes I was coaching uh, came up to me after practice. He goes, man, I got this thing going on, and, and I just don't know what to do. I don't know what's right and wrong. And I said, well, did you talk to your parents? Said, oh, my parents don't care about me. They just buy me stuff. They, don't, they, they never tell me what's right and wrong. And, and this guy's coming to me, who he barely knows, I mean, after a couple of months, and, and wants that kind of input. Kids crave that sort of thing. Uh, and, and I think we crave that sort of thing in terms of our Heavenly Father. So nothing wrong uh, with drawing boundaries. But if you want to provoke a child to anger or to exasperation, here's what you do. This is the shortest distance between two points. This thing I know for sure. Adopt the don't do as I do, do as I say school of parenting. Because one thing, and you know, Sean, you're closer to this uh, age than certainly I am. Um, one of the things that I think uh, all teenagers have is an incredibly highly tuned sense of hypocrisy. Uh, you know, the, the idea that that's not fair. You know, I mean, you, you just hear that all the time. So if you're not going to provoke your child to wrath and get into the it's not fair kind of uh, avoid that sort of thing, then walk your talk, you know? Don't ask your child to do anything that you yourself won't model for them, uh, that, that, that you yourself aren't willing to do as, as a leader uh, yourself. Uh, and, you know, again, that can put us in a pretty precarious place and we might feel like we're being watched like a hawk and say, oh, it's not fair, you know, and I'm not perfect. Well, yeah, even if you're not perfect, great opportunity to tell your kids, yeah, I'm not perfect, and I'm willing to own up to that. And I'm willing to admit that, and I'm willing to change, and I'm willing to put feet to my faith in terms of making these things right. You do that in any set of circumstances, I think, I think you're going to be okay. 
I, I think you might not see the results you're looking for instantaneously, and that's why they sell those books, you know, Perfect Parenting and How I Achieved It, the sequel to Humility and How I Obtained It. Uh, you know, I, I, I get real frustrated by these, these kind of things. The, the most important thing is for you to walk with the Lord, you know, kind of like Joshua said, uh, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Notice it started with Joshua, me and my house. Walk with the Lord. Be consistent in your walk with God. Love your kids. You can't love them enough. You can't tell them you love them enough, even when they're driving you crazy. Um, th those sort of things, I think, will eventually pay off in the long term. And, of course, the old saw kicks in. Just when your kids are fit to live with, they're living with someone else. But at least you did your best to give them a good start. Yeah, and again, this is an opinion, not necessarily Bible, but I'll, I'll just throw it out there as someone closer to that age. If you want to maneuver around this, say, for example, they're getting, they want to get a tattoo, you have tattoos, so you can't say don't get a tattoo because you know that next step's coming. Or they are getting involved in relationships too young, wrong kind of people, and you don't want to be able to, of course, uh, have to go through that whole rigmarole. So maneuver a little bit more strategically and instead of saying don't get a tattoo tell them horror stories basically turn them off to the whole idea to the point where they have to hear all about the black knee and all about the you know the afterward pins and needles and oh man look at this one it used to be sharp and now it's all saggy and you don't even have to let them uh, lead them into conclusions just tell them how horrible your experiences were talk about all of your uh, former relationships and how at that age it just ended up breaking your heart that i think might stick more in their mind than just no and yes yeah, mm. yeah. I'm taking again notes. just advice just Thank advice <laughs> yeah well let us know how it works out <laughs> less than 10 years i'll be there yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh mike wants to know Thanks, Mike, for the question. I had uh, I had a conversation with someone today who doesn't believe the Bible. They believe the Torah. I've never heard of this type of belief before. Can you so, help me witness to them? Uh, they don't believe in Jesus. Thanks. Yeah, they that, that could are, be a couple things. Um, there's the Hebrew roots movement. There's the you know Judaizer heresy. There's the uh, mindset of, or there's just straight up conservative or Orthodox Judaism. Yeah. And yeah. When people say, I believe Torah, Torah is referencing the first five books of the Old Testament. Yeah. Is there a, a group or a sect that are like Noatic? They uh, forget the what Noahites? Yeah. It's similar. Is that kind of a similar idea? It can be. Uh, uh, I, I think what I, it sounds to me like the encounter there is someone that comes from a Jewish background. Uh, they accept the Torah, the first five books of Moses, but they don't believe in Jesus. Um, one of the reasons they accept the first five books of Moses is they then, uh, in many cases, don't really want to deal with passages like Isaiah 53, you know, who's believed a report and who's the arm of the Lord been revealed. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and a root out of barren ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him or appearance that we should be attracted to him. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and one like from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him smitten of God, stricken and afflicted. And it goes on from there. Uh, you read that to a Jewish person, they'll say, well, that's your New Testament. Well, no, that's the book of Isaiah, uh, 700 years before Christ. And so in order to uh, kind of shield themselves from some of these pointedly uh, messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, over 103 in this first coming alone, uh, some of them will say, no, I'm just going to stick to the Torah. 
and by saying I stick to the Torah, really they are probably more under Talmudic teaching. Uh, the Talmud are the rabbi's commentaries on the Torah. But it's all kind of designed to uh, insulate somebody from seriously considering the claims of Christ. So how do you pry somebody off that rock? Well, the good news is every single book in our Bible, all 66 of them, by the way, Old and New Testament, are based on standards laid out in the Torah. So if you take them to, and this is a great place to study in more detail, Deuteronomy 17, where it notes no one's to be taken seriously as a prophet of God unless they perform public miracles, they're accountable for it, they're consistent with it, and of course, they're accurate in what they're giving. Um, every single book of the Old Testament, the prophets that were written in those accounts did pass that standard. The apostles also perform public miracles for that same reason, why their words about Jesus being the Messiah were to be taken seriously. So if they take Torah seriously, and we note the Torah as the standard for the entirety of the Bible, and why other books weren't included in it, like Enoch and Tobit and others, then I think you can have a better conversation with the whole counsel of God's Word, because God laid out how he was going to speak to mankind in the Torah. When they say Torah, it's again usually just a dismissal or a smokescreen. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, let me uh, jump in and answer uh, a quick question. Question about uh, Matthew 23, 9, uh, call no man father. Uh, is that uh, a, something you should share with a Roman Catholic? Uh, maybe the best way to share that with a Roman Catholic is to say, Jesus wasn't saying that there was no such thing as hierarchy and leadership. Passages like uh, Hebrews chapter 13, for instance, tell us that we should be in submission to biblical leadership. But if someone puts on airs and says, you must call me by my exalted title, that's what Jesus was speaking against. Servant leadership dedicated to loving people and building them up, something we should always support. Thank you, Bob. Uh, Dwayne, we'll get your questions tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Thank you for your questions. God bless you. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.